Merry Christmas. I know of no better place to be this morning than here with you, celebrating the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not equate equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We are especially reminded of that today, that he has humbled himself to come and be with us, to be Emmanuel and God with us. Indeed, so awesome is the incarnation that we are constantly having to prepare ourselves for for the immortal God to take on mortal flesh is a thing that we can barely conceive of. God knew well that we would need to prepare ourselves for this. Even people who were awaiting for God to do miraculous things had to be prepared for this. So we read in Luke 1, 16 through 17, Zechariah learns of his son that John the Baptist will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before them in the power and spirit of Elijah and turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The Lord is coming. You need to prepare yourselves. So we, too, have been preparing for this day. Each week of this month, we have been lighting an Advent candle. We have been preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord. And while there has been, every week we've lit that candle, a brief explanation of what those candles mean, I think today would be a good day to see how all of these tie together, to review all the scriptures that we've read these past four weeks, to put them all sort of in a neat bow for you so that we can understand better what it is that we are preparing ourselves for and how God prepares us for it. Our first stop then is in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. The first candle that we lit was the candle of prophecy. So this morning we will discuss what the point of prophecy is. We read from Isaiah 9 verses 2 through 7 which reads thus, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This particular scripture speaks of a child of vast importance. A child that will put all right that has gone wrong who will bring back the people of God from their scatterings and bring David's kingdom 
and eternal peace to the earth. The prophecy doesn't start there. A more famous prophecy actually lies back in Isaiah chapter 7. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, we read that there is a king by the name of Ahaz who lives in Jerusalem, and he is very much afraid for the king of the northern kingdom, the king of Israel, has surrounded Jerusalem with the king of Damascus. They are going to go up to Judah to terrify it and conquer it. Verse 2 of chapter 7 tells us that the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom. When told this, the heart of Ahaz the king and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The prophecy, of course, starts when prophecy should. It starts in dark times. You don't need prophecy for good things. Where God seems distant and hope seems like the rarest and most foolish of things to have. Needless to say, it doesn't inspire confidence that the king shakes like trees in the wind. So God comes to him and gives him a promise. He asks something of Ahaz. We get this in verse 10 of chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God comes to Ahaz and he says, Listen, I know that you're quaking before all that's going to befall you, but I'm telling you, I will give you a sign. I've told you that you will not fall to the king from the north. You will not fall to them. I will be with you and I will uphold you. But just to inspire confidence in you, ask of a sign from me. Let it be as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, and I will give it to you. Note the nature of that sign. This is one of the most genie-in-the-bottle portions of Scripture you could possibly imagine. God basically says to him, Listen, it doesn't matter what you want. You want me to stop the sun in the middle of the sky? I will do that. You want me to make it rain from a cloudless sky? I can do that. Bring water up from the ground, dry out seas, topple over mountains. What would you like, Ahaz? Ask of me a sign and I will give it to you. Nothing will be held back. I remember when I was three, my family didn't fly much, we never flew. I was offered, when I was three years old, to go into the pilot seat when we were flying down to Louisiana to see relatives, and I declined. That was a huge mistake. (laughs) I will never get that opportunity again. And it wasn't nearly as big of a mistake as Ahaz makes here. He could have asked for anything from God, absolutely anything. He refuses. Note even the, the piety with which he refuses God here. I won't put the Lord my God to the test. It's not putting your Lord God to the test when he offers to do miracles for you. John, or excuse me, Isaiah comes back and says, well, listen, if you refuse to listen to God, he will then give you a sign. And that sign is that a virgin, a young woman, will conceive and bear a son and they will name him Emmanuel. Now, many scholars trying to say that Matthew is wrong-headed and scholars are wrong-headed to translate the verse this way. 
assume that Isaiah was simply talking about his own wife's pregnancy, which we will read about in one chapter uh, from now, in chapter 8. After all, Isaiah is um, not using the most normal word that they would use for the word virgin. It, it can imply virginity, but it certainly means a young woman here that, uh, that Isaiah uses as well. But the, the actual prophecy that God gives has to match the gravity with which he allows Ahaz to choose from. So Ahaz says, I won't put the Lord my God to the test. He says, I allowed you to choose any miracle that you could possibly want. No matter how great your little brain can think up something, I could do it for you in a heartbeat. Anything that you ask of me, I could do. So to then say that the sign that God gives Ahaz is the fact that Isaiah is going to go to his wife, conceive a child, and have a child born is the flattest, most insipid way that you could possibly read that prophecy. You can do anything. You can pick anything out you want to. You don't want that? Fine. I'll give you a real prophecy. Here's a real prophecy. A man and a woman will conceive and they're going to have a kid. Like, that's pretty normal, I'm thinking, right? That happens. So to make that sign something so natural, so ubiquitous, so normal, seems such an affront to the context of the sign that it seems more impossible that Isaiah meant that than to have a virgin birth in the first place. So there's no way that the birth of Maher Shalal Hashbaz is in any way, shape, or form, the fulfillment of that prophecy, even in light of that. What we have at the end of chapter 8 is Isaiah told to wait. He is to wait for the deliverance of the Lord. He is to wait for God to bring about what he has promised. He says, I will destroy the northern kingdom. But even in that destruction of the northern kingdom, he gives another sign. He says, even that northern kingdom that will be destroyed and will be sent away, I will bring them someone. What we didn't read was 9-1 those northern kingdom, that northern kingdom that came down upon the southern kingdom and sought to overtake it, God says this about, they will be thrown away from their God. But, verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1, there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Those are the tribes of the northern kingdom. He brought them into contempt, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then to these people, a child is born. A son is given, one who will be called even mighty God. It's no doubt that Isaiah means for the child of chapter 7 to be connected to the child of chapter 9. After all, being called mighty God, fulfills in himself even the name Emmanuel, that God is with us. What is the point of all this, though? Why why give such an amazing sign? But why tell Ahaz, I'm going to give an amazing sign, but it's going to be centuries, seven centuries after you die, Ahaz. This sign will come to fruition that will be a sign to all the peoples that I meant what I said when I will rescue my people. Furthermore, why not make it specific so that no skepticism can prevail over it. Why not make it really specific? Why not tell us that Jesus would be born in Galilee? Why not tell us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and and live and grow up in Galilee? Why not tell us exactly what happened? Why, Why shroud it in mystery and in vagueness? I think it's a decent objection. I think that it just misses the point of prophecy. 
the first and foremost point of prophecy is not to tell you what's going to happen in the future. It is to prepare you for what's going to happen in the future. It is to bolster our faith. Can you imagine how many children would have been named Jesus if God said, listen, right around 0 AD, there's going to be born in about 700 years a child named Jesus. Every woman in the world who knew of that prophecy would be naming their kid Jesus. Right? Be like Michael today. How many articles? They'd have editions, magazines published called Virgins Today. And they'd have articles in there about the health benefits of raising your child in a manger and uh, ten, 10 reasons that you should not go to the inn. But the point isn't to tell us exactly what's going to happen. The point is to bolster and to solidify our faith so that when we see it happening, we know that our faith is not flipping out in the wind, but it's grounded in something that God has predicted would happen all along. So by the time you get through, as we, as we talked about last week, that the genealogy in Matthew, you realize that Matthew is, is predicting and, and putting on this child a weight that is above every weight that has ever been placed on a kid born in the history of the world. He is the seed of David. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the finality of all Israel. He is what Israel has been waiting for and every aspect of God's plan coming truth in body form. So it's no doubt that when Matthew finally gets around to talking about the virgin birth that he quotes from this passage in Isaiah because he is weighty enough to carry the weight of his own prophecy. Prophecy finds its importance in providing another reason why we can trust God. It's meant to help with our faith, to alleviate lingering doubts. It is not meant to make us complete and firm in our faith when we shake like Ahaz. And you will shake. You will. None of us is strong enough or stout enough to believe without aids of signs and wonders the thing the Bible claims for us. Not a one of us. We are fortunate that the Bible doesn't just call on us to believe, but it provides prophecy to help us believe. And what's more than that, it provides example of belief and of faith, even in the midst of lingering doubts. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. We hear of the face of faith, the picture of faith. What does faith look like? Faith looks like Joseph. Matthew 18 through 25 reads this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been born betrothed to Joseph, they came together. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph, hearing the news that Mary is pregnant, ponders how to act. 
the decision was not apparently whether he would keep her as his wife, but how he was going to divorce her. Would he publicly disgrace her so that he might be all the more righteous and standing above her, a judge looking down upon her, or would he simply get rid of her in secret? And the scripture says that he resolves this. He was considering these things. These things took mental activity on his side. When the angel then appears to him and tells him, there is very little doubt that the angel tells him absolutely no new information. To think that Mary just came up to him and said, so Joseph, I'm pregnant. Will you still have me? She obviously would have come to him and explained to him the situation around the pregnancy. So when the angel shows up, it's not as though he is having revealed to him any new information. He knows all of it. He knows that she is supposed to bear a son. He knows that they're supposed to name it Jesus. He knows that Mary has claimed that the Holy Spirit has done this. Notice that after the dream, there is no more resolving. There's no more considering. There's no more thinking about it. Immediately, we are told, when Joseph woke, he did. When Joseph got up, he moved. When Joseph, having the dream given to him, he acted. He did not bear it out. He didn't go to the, the Lord. He didn't, he didn't pray about it. He didn't sit around saying, I don't know what is the best option here. He didn't go ask his dad for advice. He got up and he acted. Now, it's easy to suspect that Joseph just acted in the moment because of the vivid and powerful dream of the angel. But we cannot neglect what would have had to have been consistent and persistent doubt in him. Virgin conceptions are, needless to say, not normal. I don't think that the oddity of Mary's story would have helped Joseph any. How could doubts have not crept in? But we find later that Joseph not only acts immediately here, but he acts immediately later. When another dream happens, he gets up and he takes his son and he takes him down to Egypt. He leaves everything behind as he's already done. Marrying Mary would have had disaster written all over it for Joseph. What sustains his faith? What keeps Joseph from finding that this was all just a big mistake and trying to salvage what he might have left out of the wreckage of his life? His reputation would have been in shambles. That woman either conceived out of wedlock with him and thus tars his name, or she fornicated with another man and he married her anyway. Either way, he is guilty by association. And a man of Joseph's stature would have had only one thing going for him, and that is his reputation. That's it. Do not think that that was far out of his mind when he was considering these things. He would have had great shame, and he would have borne it the rest of his life because of that child. It wasn't until after all that Jesus Christ said and came true that people probably even started to believe what Jesus said about his birth, what Mary said about the birth of Jesus. Simply put, what Matthew writes here, it is the word spoken to him by the angels that sustains his faith. You may doubt, you personally may doubt scripture, tradition, your pastors, your family, 
the tradition of faith that you grew up in? The question becomes, though, why do you doubt those things? In all of the the difficulties that Joseph is going to face, why should it be that he doubts Mary? Why should it be that he doubts the dream? Why? Why don't you doubt your doubts? Why can't virgins have son? Why can't men be brought back from the dead? Cannot a God who has made and sustained the world do anything he wants? If he was the one who wrote the code for the world, can he not hack it how he chooses? See, faith is not the absence of doubt. It is not certainty. Not one of us is expected to walk around in our faith secure and confident. Rather, faith is the trusting of the word of God over and above and through all of those doubts. There's no, no doubt in my mind that Joseph had doubts. He didn't get to see almost any part of Jesus' life come true. Jesus was so normal for the first 30 years of his life that people didn't recognize anything special in him. So that when he got up and he started preaching, they said, who is this? Isn't this Mary's kid? They didn't recognize him at all. Do you wonder? Joseph, who apparently died later, we hear nothing about him after these events in the New Testament. Before Jesus shows up on the scene, the birth narratives are all we get of Joseph. After that, Joseph is gone. We know nothing of him. He almost certainly died. And he almost certainly died not seeing anything in Jesus that would confirm the high and glorious calling to which he was called. And yet, the only record we have of Joseph is of righteousness and of faith. Yeah, we, we believe in crazy, miraculous things. We believe in things that are impossible to confirm, test, and verify. And yes, we are very unscientific in that. But we have many reasons to doubt our doubts. We have many reasons to believe in the impossible things of this world, including virgins conceiving and bearing sons. Like Joseph's dreams, we have many reasons to doubt our doubts. So let us be skeptical of our doubt. This is what faith looks like. It resists the nagging feeling that what you see is what you get. It trusts not on blind faith, not in the absence of evidence, but on a reasonable suspicion that God is real, true, and has divulged himself to the world. He has made himself known in the word and in his son, Jesus Christ. And that faith persists in time of trouble. That belief will continue when it's difficult, burdensome, precisely because not believing it is more so. Such faith, then, ought to instill in us great joy. But many of us, no doubt, have a hard time being joyful this time of year. Some of us feel freedom in Christmas to celebrate because we don't have those burdens, but many people carry around tremendous burdens this time of year. They know they have freedom, but it doesn't look, smell, or taste like it. They know the joy they're being told that they are supposed to have in the world feels empty and hollow sometimes at best. Many of you struggle in the harsh realities of the world. And the world does not look like the Thomas Kincaid portrait that so many Christians paint Christmas time as. It is a harsh and ugly reality. All the more, then, do you feel pain and anguish when you are told that everything should be joyful in your life and you are forced to sing songs that only speak of joy. Some of us are like Simeon 
We get to rejoice over the consolation of Israel, what we've long hoped for. We see the consolation of Israel, and that's it. Some of us are like Zechariah, who mute because he doesn't believe the angel of God, but when he can, rejoices with his wife, who have waited their whole lives to have this son. That, that birth for them of John the Baptist carries no burden, but only happiness and joy. Some of us, though, are more like, I would guess, how Mary was. Mary, I would venture, is not like them. She carries around a sacrifice and a burden on her that no one in this world will ever know. In Luke 1, 26 through 33, and in 46 through 49, we read these words. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There is absolutely nothing in the angelic pronouncement to Mary that should be taken as anything but great news. God is with you. You are favored. Mary understands that later as being favored above all women. Don't be afraid. God has favored you. He repeats that refrain again. You are going to give birth to a son. That son will be great. He will be greater than any child who has ever been born. Of his kingdom and of the peace that he will give, there will be absolutely no end. Now, as a parent, the greatness of what Mary has been told can hardly be overemphasized, especially the fact that her son will be great. Listen, every parent thinks their son and their daughter is going to be great. Talk to parents of small kids. They always think that their kids are the greatest. Now, while that is objectively true of mine, think of all of yours, right? You know that that's not true. And the vast majority of us have to face the fact that our kids are not great. They are patently average. And that's fine. They can be patently average. But we don't necessarily want that for them. We want greatness for our kids. We want them to do great things. We want them to have great impact. The angel of God shows up and basically promises to Mary that your son will be great above all other children. And yet, notice her solemn, even depressing response. 
I, I guess I'm the Lord's slave. That's not rejoicing. That's not a happy response. That is, sure, if you say so. It's faithful, no doubt, faithful. It's certainly not happy. Let it be done to me according to your word. I have no doubt that Mary processed this all very quickly, at least the immediate difficulty of it. This is the response not of a woman who has been told great news of good joy, but it's the response of a child who has opened up a sweater from grandma, right? Like, he's well-mannered. He knows he should say thank you anyways, but that, that face is telling you everything you need to know, right? All of you have given gifts that look like that. And you, they, they open it up, and you can tell right away, did not hit a home run with that, right? And, and hopefully your children act and, and respond appropriately. Mary responds appropriately, but there's no joy in that response. We, we read nothing of greatness or of joy in her response here. This is unmitigated good news, and Mary still seems like she's trepidatious and worried. She's told that she's found favor, that her child will be great, even, not even, not even a king, but the king, and that there will be no end to this his rule. I have no doubt then that when Mary is told all of this, her brain immediately goes to all the difficulties that come along with these privileges. The command, the promise that your child will be great is also a promise that you have a heavy, heavy responsibility placed upon you. I am forever worried that I am going to mess my kids up permanently. Every single day, when I see them act like me in bad ways, I am forever concerned that that's going to happen. I'm always concerned that they're going to sit down with a psychiatrist when they're 25 and say, what led to the life of crime here? And they're going to say, there was this one day when my dad freaked out because my room wasn't clean. It was downhill from there. <laughs> like, I am, I'm always concerned that there's going to be one thing that will snap them. Can you imagine being Mary and being told of the greatness of your child, being told how much he will accomplish and how much he will do that the, the sins of the people of Israel will be forgiven. He will take them away. And think of the difficulty that must place upon her to actually be a good mom. You people feel that. You have pressure to be good moms and good dads and your kids are average. Except for mine. But Mary's, Mary's child was to be Great. The nagging doubt, you'd have to imagine, would rob her, especially in that immediate part of blessing and joy. But something interesting happens. She goes, as the angel has promised, as a sign, even for her, that Elizabeth, her older cousin, whose womb has long since been closed, she's not only been buried, barren in her life, but certainly in her advanced old age. This is on par with the miracle to Sarah, that she is now with child. And so Mary goes to see her, and the child in Elizabeth's womb jumps, and something changes for Mary. Something about this visit to Elizabeth changes everything for her. Perhaps as the angel gave her a word about the sign from Elizabeth, it was seeing her and her great unblemished joy. No one is happier for these events than Elizabeth was. Maybe that was what provoked maybe Mary. Whatever the cause, Mary immediately blurts out this 
praise to God. Mary says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Something about Elizabeth keys Mary in to the fact that this is not just a responsibility, but it is amazing blessing from God. Make no doubt. I have no problem saying to you that all of the difficulties that Mary were given were going to continue. It was not all going to be roses and fine wine for her. Indeed, a sword would cut her heart. She has to watch as her own son distances himself from her. We read that again and again and again in Scripture. She has to listen to her son be ridiculed and mocked by everyone. She has to watch as his own people will turn away from him. She has to watch as he not only announces that he's going to die, but actually as he goes through it, Her burdens are still there. Her worries and her pain, still there. But her joy shines through. This is the joy of Christmas. It's not that the, the, the Thomas Kincaid painting actually becomes reality for two weeks. The world's still ugly and horrible and nasty. Your troubles don't up and disappear at Christmas. But there is here a place for joy that cuts through that. There is a place here for light to come into that darkness to say that it will not always be this way. That God has promised that these things will be true. And even more than Mary, we stand on the other side of those promises. We stand not on this side of the crucifixion looking forward to the cross. We stand on this side of an empty grave looking forward to better things to come. So while you do, as Mary, feel weight and sadness this year, every Christmas maybe, know that there is a joy that can cut through that, a joy that is everlasting that God has promised to you as he has to Mary. Finally, let us ask the good question as to why we are to, even to have this joy. Joy needs an object. It needs something to light its spark, so to speak. To what is our joy supposed to be it is obviously in Jesus Christ, but why is it in Jesus Christ? What does he do for us? Put simply and straightforwardly, he gives us peace. The last candle that we lit even today was of peace. This we read in Luke 2, 8 through 20. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their herds by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over into Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. It is interesting. The angel appears to shepherds, and he announces to them what's going to happen, but then the curtain is sort of pulled back, and you have standing before these meager shepherds, the lowest of of people in Israel, you have the curtain pulled back, and before them stands the entire army of God. When you hear hosts here, it is the angel army of God standing before them. It is not for nothing, then, that it is God's army that pronounces peace. It is not a peace that is given. It is a peace that is won. The shepherds, no doubt, if they're from Israel, would have thought of this peace as deliverance of Israel from her enemies. We, no doubt, when we hear of this peace, think of the peace that we have with God and our freedom from sin, and both of those things are correct. Christ has come fully and finally to give us peace. This is why the book of Revelation looks like it does. This is why we have every tear wiped from every eye. This is why the gates of the city in Revelation, in Revelation 21, are open all the time. They're not open to let people in. They're open because no one can come in. Gates are there to keep out enemies, and there are no more enemies. There is peace everywhere on earth. Christ will win peace for those whom God is pleased to give it to. He does this, at least as I can tell, in four different ways. First, he defeats our accuser. Satan's great power is in the law. He convicts us before the mighty and righteous God. He is the accuser of the brethren, and rightfully so. While it is true that his world um, is his, and many in the world fight for him, let it be very well known He will one day turn over all of those to the fire of hell and be rightful in doing so. The allegiance that many in this world give to him who exist in the kingdom of darkness will not be paid back to them from him. He will claim that they are unrighteous and they are deserving of hell and he claims that over the brethren as well. But as Paul says in Romans 8, 33 through 34, who will bring any charge against God's elect? If God desires peace to be on those whom he gives favor to, who is going to say that we are to be condemned? Who is going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It wasn't some bloke on the street who said you were okay. It is God Almighty himself. It is the Supreme Court. There is nowhere else to appeal to. There is no higher court. When God hands down a verdict, you don't get to say, listen, I I don't really like that verdict. There's some bad evidence here. We're going to appeal to a higher court. God says, no, 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 I made my decision. There is no appealing. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Why would God try you twice? 
The penalty has been paid. Christ was condemned. You are not. The accuser has no ammunition left. So we have peace because Christ has beaten our enemy. We have peace in ourselves as well. We know of no guilt anymore. We are still sinful. We are still broken. And yet we are told time after time after time that Christ will forgive that turn to him, repent, and he is faithful to forgive. He even commits this to his, his disciples. How many times? 70 pounds, seven. You just keep forgiving. Isaiah 8.18, Isaiah himself speaks of him and his children, but the author of Hebrews trades that verse in to speak of Jesus and his brothers. In Hebrews 2, 11 through 12, Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. And Hebrews says, he is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Likewise, you have peace with yourselves. Let your guilt no longer weigh you down. You have been forgiven and your sins are cleansed. Jesus is not afraid to call you brother and sister. And by his death, he also makes peace with God for us. Romans 3, 25 says that Jesus is a propitiation for our sin, that our enmity with God, which we even read about in Colossians, that we are enmity and alienated and hostile in mind before God. God himself quenches his anger and his wrath with us by pouring it out upon his son. So there is no more enmity between us and God. Christ writes us and he writes God toward us. So now there is only favor and blessing. We have peace with God. And this also means that we have peace with one another. Time and time again, Scripture relays that our actions in the world are to be based upon what Christ has done for us. Why can we bear one another's burdens? Why can we bear the guilt and the, the shame of one another? How can we forgive? He says, clearly, because Christ has forgiven you. So you go and forgive. No longer is your neighbor your enemy, but he is an object of love and compassion. Christ is a bringer of peace and thus a lamb. But he does it through war, and thus a lion. This is indeed good news. We come here today to celebrate how God has made that war. His great plan is not to engage his army, not to win victory with shield and sword, not with flood, nor simply to punish his enemies. His great plan was a timid child wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was God in flesh, divinity humbled, the mightiest of warriors made weak. He is the most compassionate God who has come to be hated for your sake. The provider in need, the creator born, the sustainer sustained, greatness rejected, holiness identified with sin, pure life born to die, all so the dead might live again. This is good news of great joy. This is something worthy of trust and prophesied long ago. This is why we celebrate Christmas. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful this day that he has come to be with us that indeed we have Emmanuel. 
May you be with us always, Father, as you have promised through your Son and the work of your Spirit. May you be praised over all things. In Jesus' name, amen.